0: Good morning. This is Radio 3. We now present Part 7 of My Matters, introduced by Carol Mann. Good morning and welcome once again to Mind Matters, our series of abridged talks and lectures. I'm Carol Meng. Today, we'll explore China's opium business with Dr. Peter Thiele from the University of Mississippi in the US. Beginning in the 1830s and reaching its peak a hundred years later, the opium trade exerted a significant influence on the Chinese political economy. Opium money became deeply intertwined with local, national, and imperial finances. And the individual involved in the trade played a crucial role in Chinese society. Dr. Thiele was invited by Hong Kong University to give a talk based on this book, The Opium Business, A History of Crime and Capitalism in Maritime China.
1: So the origin of this book... Uh, the opium business lies in a short case uh, about the murder of a customs officer in 1875, which I found during my first semester in graduate school. Uh, this is a story about opium that had a lot of elements that were sort of confusing to me. Um The drug was legal in those years, I learned, but people were smuggling it because of high taxes. Um, the murdered customs officer was was British, uh, but he was working for the Qing state, ca- collecting taxes on foreign trade. Now, all, all of this is probably super familiar to everybody, but I was new, right? There was a lot going on and it was confusing to me. So while I puzzled that out, um, I set about reading the scholarship on opium in China. Um, there's a lot of good books, right? Uh, cultural histories of opium use, detailed explanations of the buildup uh, to the 1839 opium war, uh, more than a few books about the institutions and social movements behind opium prohibition. Um, a lot to learn, uh, but some of my basic questions were just not answered in the scholarship. So those questions uh, summarized here are the guiding research questions of the book. How did the people who bought and sold opium make their money? How did they interact with the state? And how did this change over time? Um, these are questions that even the best histories of opium uh, in China didn't ans- answer in a satisfying way. So from the beginning, I felt that answering those questions would, um, at, a, at a minimum, provide a legible, usable chronology of opium's history in China. It's kind of a baseline service to the field, right? So the first four chapters of the book do this, just sort of explaining how the business changed over time through its rise as a contraband item through 20 years of what I call uh, negotiated illegality after 1843 and the opening of the treaty ports through another 60 or so years of de facto legality until 1906. And then after that period. Uh, a new a new moment of sort of uneven and, and unsuccessful prohibition characterized by increased uh, centralization and state efforts to control the business from the top down. So that aside, sort of beyond clarifying the timeline of OBM's modern history, when I set out, I also felt I could demystify OBM, make it less special, study it as a commodity, right? An item of exchange and consumption. In the late imperial and then modern world economy, right? This was uh, this was shipped uh, and warehoused with other items. It was in the same boats, the same banks. It was bought, sold, and consumed by the same people who were buying and selling sugar and tea and and other things, cotton, right? So, my editor came up with the book's subtitle, A History of Crime and Capitalism in Maritime China. And I think it's accurate. Um, I think it's a history of capitalism in the sense that it explores the evolution of a particular industry, uh, the sale and distribution of a globalized agricultural trade commodity, how this changed over time from the late 19th to the early 20th century. And it provides an analysis of business-state relations within that industry. What I found was that opium was... Special. I couldn't get away from that, right? It was special in its moral and legal status. Um, this special status is, in fact, the opportunity that opium provides to say something new within this scholarship uh, the history of capitalism broadly conceived. Uh, but in particular, commodity histories. Um, o- opium was both ordinary, uh, and ubiquitous, but it was also, uh, illegal, uh, often. Uh, and when it wasn't illegal, it was, it was still sort of like, uh, illicit or, or sort of subversive. Um, there was a particular regulatory and moral context that surrounded opium throughout its modern history. As an industry, it developed a particularly thorny relationship, uh, antagonistic and codependent with the people and institutions of state power. So my argument in the book is that opium traders mattered. Um, they shaped the Qing state's approach to legalizing and taxing the drug when the drug was brought out into the opium uh into the open uh in the late 1850s the people at the heights of the business worked with officials to determine tax rates and quotas to collect those taxes to regulate the transport and distribution of the drug uh, opium traders made themselves indispensable as sources of state revenue and through their interactions with local officials uh opium became uh one of the fiscal cornerstones of the militarizing late Qing state so this basic, um, framework, uh, I argue is not unique in the region. And, and I'm going to sort of set that aside here in the interest of time. But, but, uh, if, if people want to kind of talk about comparisons with other states in, in Asia, in particular, Southeast Asia, I'm happy to sort of talk that through. But I want to start, um, a, a, a single story here, uh, an example. From the first chapter of the book. And start at the beginning. Um, opium in its modern, spokeable form came to China from, uh, through the diaspora, uh, in places like modern Malaysia and Indonesia. Uh, Middle Eastern and Dutch merchants had supplied Southeast Asian markets with Indian opium since at least uh, the early 17th century. And the diaspora in early modern Southeast Asia was big. Right as we know, uh, it came almost exclusively from two provinces: from Fujian, where where my story takes place, and neighboring Guangdong, where where many of you are. Right. So, in the 18th and early 19th century, longstanding mercantile and migratory networks extending out of Fujian and Guangdong um, connected the Qing Empire's economy to maritime Southeast Asia. Traders from coastal southern Fujian followed seasonal and regional production and wind patterns bringing chinese tea and taiwanese camphor metal cookware from china to southeast asia and in the summer monsoon returning back to fujian with with southeast asian rice and sugar and medicinal commodities and more and more each year indian opium and so in the 1830s these three things happened or, or several things happened right the opium trade took off uh the malwa region of india there there's this new um, alternative to the British East India Company, Monopoly Opium from Bengal. So they redouble their efforts in Bengal. And then in the marketing end uh, in China, the uh, 1834 is the end of the British East India Company's Monopoly, which opens the door for specialized private firms to engage in various types of competition in opium smuggling. And so the raw numbers are are sort of staggering from the 1830s. Um, prior to 1820, the peak was a, a few thousand chests. Uh, of the drug annually by 1830, 30,000 chests every year into China and 40,000 by the end of the decade. So my big question is like, how, how, right? How was this managed? It's an awful lot of, il- of illegal drugs to import and distribute illegally, um, right? This was prohibited, we know. So at the moment of import, uh, transactions between the British sellers and the Chinese buyers took place offshore uh removed by a small distance from the Qing officials charged with prohibiting the trade. And so the small island of Linton uh, in the Pearl River Delta was the sort of epicenter of this since the 1820s, uh, home to a collection of receiving ships, these giant hulks that served as floating warehouses. So the system there was this long standing, simple, effective smuggling mechanism where where buyers could go to local banks, get a receipt, take them out to the boat and pick up their opio. And many of these buyers came from the province of Fujian and worked to transport the drugs to other major ports. right? So they brought the, the drugs up the coast to Shanghai or, or Tianjin, or these other ports where the cargo would be split up and diverted to the various markets across China. Traders from Shenhu Bay were worked into this system through a triangular trade route that they ran, wherein they carried opium uh, north uh, up the coast and then across to Taiwan, they carried Taiwanese sugar to Ningbo and the Yangtze River Valley, and they carried Jiangnan cottonware south back to Fujian. And then in the early 1830s, the merchants of Bay and neighboring Xiamen and Chuanzhou uh, caught a break uh, that improved the logistics of their operation. Uh, British opium importers started sending ships up to them to conduct the wholesale trade there rather than at Linton. So this basic phenomenon, the, the migration of around half the opium imports up the coast from Linton to southern Fujian is the chapter, is the subject of chapter one of my book. So that my entry into this research, uh, that became this chapter was, uh, the document pictured here, a 17 page memorial from the governor general of Fujian and Zhejiang provinces to the Daoguang Emperor's Grand Council in Beijing. So a memorial on a criminal matter like this is the final wrapped up version of a case written maybe a year after the events it describes based on the governor's reading of reports, documents on the case from from the local officials. And the one pictured here uh, describes the opium operations of a man named Shi a resident of Yako village in Jinjiang County, Fujian province. It describes how Shi and his fellow lineage members enticed the foreign opium merchants Big and Little Li, north from Guangdong into Fujian to establish a smuggling depot at Shenhou Bay. At the end of the case, there's 111 individuals listed as having been arrested or at large and wanted for opium crimes related to the case. The story, Shi Hou, Shi and Shi Gui are all members of the Shi lineage of Yaoko village in Jinjiang County, uh, where I took that photo. Even today, uh basically this entire village is inhabited by people with this surname, maybe ten thousand people. Uh lineages like this could be huge, um uh with their own internal class divisions, intera lineage feuds even, right? This one, the sure lineage of Yako village, is an especially prominent lineage within the region, um, because of their longstanding connections to the Fujian Navy, as well as the uh de- they date their um ancestry back to the 16th century patriarch Sherlong, who, who, the guy who, you know, helped the conquering Qing dynasty establish control in the region. So these three guys, uh, Sherho and his, his, his bros, right? These, uh, this, this gang here were of the petty merchant kind of transport labor cr- class. They clearly had access to some money, um, as well. According to what Sherho testified after, after his capture before dying in custody, the three of them sold cotton cloth for a living, uh, traveling between Fujian and the port of Shantou and neighboring Guangdong. Uh, one day in 1832, while visiting Shantou, a local acquaintance named Wang Majer convinced them that they could make a lot more money uh, if they just started bringing their opium north to Shanahu Bay uh, rather than selling cloth. So uh, they agreed. Uh, the three men traveled to Macau with their new friend. They bought around $480 worth of opium, a little bit less than a full chest. And then they brought it back to Fujian for resale. Uh, one of them, Shi Shubao, uh, stayed on in Macau to learn the business. And this kind of continued for a few years. And then in June of 1835, Shi Ho decided it was inconvenient to be trucking up and down the coast all the time. Wouldn't it be nice if there were uh, foreign partners? These uh, 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 They call them uh, Macau born foreigners. Um, Big and Little Li uh, brought, uh, wouldn't it be nice if they brought uh, a boatload or two of the drug uh, up to Fujian instead? Everybody said, okay, good idea. And that summer, Big and Little Lee made their first trip to Shenhu Bay. The testimony in the document states that the deal that brought Big and Little Lee north to Fujian was a guarantee uh, from Shiho and Shi Shubao uh, for the purchase of six chests uh, and 27 balls of opium at $3,200. Um, after the ship's arrival in Fujian, Sherho is described as uh, having brokered various other deals for lineage members and people in neighboring villages. In the most conspicuous example, uh, Sherho charged one of his gentry kinsmen, uh, a jiansheng or student of the imperial imperial college, uh, charged him six hundred dollars uh, in brokerage fees um to act as intermediary in his purchase of opium from the foreigners uh, a $10 fee on 60 chests of opium the wholesale price would have been over $30,000 um this is the only evidence, evidence about truly large scale brokerage that we know must have been happening um uh, uh, and the other purchases tally to only around 27 chests
0: After listening to Mind Matters. Dr. Peter Thiele told us how the opium business started in China. Next he asked how did these profitable floating enterprises manage to coexist with the military and civil authorities who monitor them from afar?
1: sure Partners Big and Little Lee had been visiting Shanhubei Bay regularly since 1832. Uh, this was my most kind of embarrassingly noisy archival discovery the brothers John and Thomas Reese, who who worked for rival firms and hated each other, uh, big and little Lee, Lee Chuanzhou, right? Um, captain Lee. Thomas was captain of the Lord Amherst, which was a ship owned by Danton Company, and his brother John was captain of a, a series of different ships uh, owned by Jardine Matheson and Company. For seven years, from 1832 to 1839, these two men were in competition. They were stationed almost exclusively in Shanhu Bay, selling opium, competing with each other, undercutting each other's prices, lying to each other, signing price-fixing agreements and breaking them, hating each other, complaining about each other's bad faith. It's it's pretty funny um, in in the in the sources. So here uh, is a letter from one of John Reese's contacts on shore in Yako Village. Somebody in the Sure lineage probably requesting that Reese vacate Shenhu Bay for a brief time due to an impending government raid on opium traders. Uh, this is from over a year after Sherho was arrested, by the way. Uh, the trade continued on um, after that wave of arrests. Uh, the 111 people were not essential, I guess, right? Sherho wasn't essential to the business. These were um, educated, well-connected people that Reese was dealing with on shore. So in the memorial then, it's clear that Sherho is being scapegoated for the presence of these British ships, even as the authors seem to be deliberately concealing from Beijing the extent of the drug trade and the Brit- the extent of the British presence in Fujian. Uh, the 27 chests of opium that those 111 uh, people purchased is-, is laughable. When you look at the Jardine Matheson sources, 27 chests was the work of like a slow Tuesday morning at the Shenhu Bay anchorage. So what else is missing from the picture of the uh, opium trade in Shanghai Bay that we get from the memorial, right? How else might some of these British sources um, uh, contradict or fill out the story? So the first insight that I gained by reading the sources together was a more accurate picture of the scale and the geography of the import market. The map shown here, I've gathered the best evidence I could about the buyers and sellers who participated. Uh, the numbers are lineages that dominated the trade in Jinjiang County. Um, it's just a fraction of the coastline. The X's are British opium anchorages. From the Jardine Matheson sources, I was able to put together that between 1835 and 1839, the five years leading up to the Opium War, 60% of the opium brought from India to China was imported or transacted between British seller and Chinese buyer at the anchorages on this map, right? not in the Pearl River Delta. Uh, 20 years earlier, the total opium imports from India to China had peaked at a few thousand chests, maybe worth one, one and a half million dollars. In 1835, and remember the numbers only increased after this, in 1835, uh, somewhere between 17,000 and 24,000 chests of opium changed hands at these anchorages, meaning that somewhere between 11 and 19 million dollars were shipped back down to Canton and William Jardine. It's a lot of drugs, it's a lot of drugs, it's a lot of money. I'm um, Looking at the anchorages again, it seems important to note that Shen Hubei is the only one that's even remotely hidden from the site of very prominent officials, and Shen Hubei is hardly out of sight, as I noted at the beginning. Uh, in Xiamen to the south, those anchorages are in direct and plain sight of the naval garrisons on Xiamen and Jinmen. Uh, likewise the anchorages in Quanzhou Harbor were not in any way hidden. From the Quanzhou Prefect, the Jinjiang Magistrate, or any of the other officials stationed in that city. Um, so there has to be more to the story, obviously, right? But what is that story? Um, how did these kind of lucrative floating businesses coexist with the military and civil authorities who looked out at them across the waves? The Jardine Matheson sources, one cited here on screen, offer some detail. Uh, More often than not, the bribery was systematized into a $10 fee per chest collected on board the receiving ships at the moment of purchase so that the chest could be stamped with a chop to indicate payment. Pictured on the top left is one in a long series of Jardine Matheson documents that reference state officers being stationed on board the opium ships to collect this $10 fee. Uh, The evidence, uh, extending over several years of letters, dovetails with the memorial we were just looking at in a really interesting way. If we recall how Shervo charged $10 per chest, uh, in what they called a brokerage fee for all of the opium that his neighbors and relatives were buying from the ships, right? What if Shervo was actually not collecting those fees for himself, but, um, uh, for the person who eventually, uh, arrested him, right? So get back to that in a second. It seems plausible. Uh, Reese and his compatriots even argued about whether or not they were being duped about this fee. Maybe it was just a brokerage fee and the, the lineage was just kind of, Using its clout to force their neighbors to pay for access to these foreign ships. Uh, once or twice, John Reese and the other captains even went on shore to try and negotiate bribes and regulations with government authorities. Uh, Reese would have always preferred to pay the officials himself. Uh, his boss, William Jardine, demanded it, but but Reese was only uh, very rarely able to do that. Um, the archive is filled with frustrated letters where Reese and these other captains can never really fully crack those relationships between the major opium-trading lineages and the officials who required payment. Uh, Instead, the negotiation and payment of bribes was managed by leading figures in the lineages who were engaged in the trade in a similar manner, and indeed in concert with their other complex ongoing negotiations and interactions with the state. The sure lineage achieved some incredible leverage if Reese's sources are, are to be trusted He writes in one letter that they successfully earmarked $10,000 of their annual $26,000 bribe for the victims of a lineage feud, which they might otherwise have been seen as culpable for. In another instance, when a new official came in and disrupted the trade, Reese's contacts on shore informed him that the most respectable men in the lineage had activated their contacts in the provincial capital, went over the new official's head and got him transferred out. So what happened with sher if their relationship with the state was so cozy? The final conclusion I reached is that they uh, were arrested in curious circumstances, almost certainly related to the non-payment of an expected bribe during the Lunar New Year. In early 1837, right around the New Year, uh, another new official was appointed. And, and this is a trope, right? There's a constant circulation of officials in this administration. And this time, according to Reese, the lineage elders decided to try and hold back about one third of the bribe he was expecting. And this is ultimately why, uh, I think I was able to find that document in the number one archives in Beijing, about 111 people, uh, who were arrested for opium crimes, right? Sure. How this guy might've been a double scapegoat on paper blamed for the arrival of British ships in Southern Fujian. And in practice, killed in retribution for an unpaid bribe that he may or may not have been responsible. It's fun to think about the kind of possibilities here. Wealthy merchants in the region had systematically partnered with officials to provide funds uh, for educational institutions, granaries, soup kitchens, a variety of social welfare institutions. Merchant associations operating between coastal southern Fujian and Taiwan. Uh, Several prominent ones located on the shore of Shenhu Bay likewise contributed to public works and temples, cultivating productive uh, relationships with local officials. This is the immediate context for the arrival of the offshore opium market to southern Fujian. When British ships started anchoring near these ports after 1832, powerful figures in the maritime trading community stepped in to negotiate a system of fees and protection and regulation emerged. Uh, lineage elders met with local officials. They negotiated payments. They negotiated regulations. They created a system of fees that became normalized and standardized with widely known rates, chops or stamps to indicate payment. All of this kind of, um, a system right uh, opium became an object of revenue collection for local officials they approached it in a systematic way and the money was spread around uh through the civil and military bureaucracy right how do we decide when it's revenue or a bribe if they're if they're using it to help pay the soldiers right um these local practices of opium revenue extraction developed in the 1830s provided then the most immediate context For the earliest attempts to formalize opium import and transport taxes in the coming decades. So over the courses of the, over the course of the subsequent chapters of the book, I develop an argument that can basically be summarized as follows, right? The people who bought and sold opium exerted uh, a profound amount of agency over the Qing and then later Republican states regulation of their industry. Uh, At the beginning of the story, like I just told lineage merchants partnered with local naval commanders and came up with a system of revenue collection. In Chapter 2, I described the first two decades after the opening of the first five treaty ports and uh, to foreign trade and consular representation, the aftermath of the opium war. And during those years, the opium trade remained illegal, and the import market continued to be conducted offshore. So this pattern of systematic fee collection in Shunhu Bay, uh, for example, lasted through that those years uh, into the early 1860s, in fact. It was only in the late 1850s that opium taxation in the formal sense began to exist when the Qing state authorized two new systems of tax collection, an import tax collected at the ports at the moment of import, and then that cluster of territorial transport distribution and retail taxes, that the most famous of which we we know as the Legion. So in Fujian prominent, opium merchants competed with each other to purchase the uh, collection regulatory rights for these transport taxes, um, and that's the story I tell in Chapter 3 of the book. Chapter 4 then demonstrates the continuity in opium regulatory and taxation practices before and after the Prohibition Edicts of 1906. It explains how opium prohibition bureaus and poppy tax collection ag- agencies uh, operated along familiar tax farming lines to the, f- to the legion bureaus of the 19th centuries, 19th century and how these new institutions took their shape through negotiations between prominent opium merchants and the warlord and Guomindang authorities who fought over the province. Chapter five then pivots to explain the transformed role of coastal southern Fujian in the reoriented uh, global drug trade of the early 20th century, sort of casting a really wide net, um, uh, especially the League of Nations archive to kind of understand the tidal wave of opium, morphine, heroin, and cocaine smuggling that came out of China uh, into jurisdictions across South and Southeast Asia before and after World War One, And then the final chapter, chapter six, explains the role of Japanese citizenship for the people who bought and sold opium during the early 20th century. Um, Japan colonized Taiwan in, in 1896, and, and Xiaomin, of course, is just a very short journey from there. The majority population of Taiwan, when Japan took over, were people from uh, or of southern Fujini's descent. Um, so in that final chapter, I sort of grapple with the phenomenon of, of flexible citizenship, right, of of 30,000 people by the 1930s who lived permanently in southern Fujian with Japanese colonial citizenship. Many more, you had, had fake passports and placards that, you know, fake placards declaring them uh, Japanese, every opium den in Xiamen was, was, uh, Japanese owned by the 1930s. Every director of an opium prohibition bureau, collector of a poppy tax, uh, had either real or fake Taiwanese citizenship. So there I sort of explore the urban history of Xiamen through the kind of citizenship based conflicts that characterize the drug industry and talk about how a, a coalition of, of Taiwanese Really, Fujini's um, uh, businessmen established themselves as the leading power uh, in the city about a decade before Japan annexed support in 1938.
0: That was Dr. Peter Thaley from University of Mississippi. I'm Carol Meng, and I invite you to join me next Sunday morning on Mind Matters.